Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip talks about the death of index investing. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip. All right, back with another episode. If you're watching live on LinkedIn or the replay video on LinkedIn or any of my clips that I put out later that I put out on LinkedIn, you'll see me stunting in my Peloton Century t-shirt. I got it a month ago when I crossed 100 rides on the Peloton. So I've been waiting on the shirt. My, my, my wife crossed 100, 100 rides first, so she got hers because I, I like to run. you know. But when it gets cold, them rides go up. I ride every day, so proud of my shirt. But today we are, so I got a question from a client via email early in the week who'd been digging into reading, educating uh, himself. And he asked, you know, why not, you know, he asked about index investing. Why not just invest all the money? And and this is not what he said, but when people typically think index investing, they're thinking about the, you know, putting all your money in the S&P 500, for example, and just letting it ride versus using active funds or looking at different other asset classes. I like the idea of using low-cost funds, which are index funds or ETFs, to build portfolios. But when people talk about index funds, index investing, they're typically talking about, like what I I mentioned, you know, buying the S&P 500 and holding it and not trying to time the market or select the market. And so I want to clarify why I don't think specifically – buying an S&P 500 index fund over the next 10, 20 years is going to be uh, the, the best investment or the investment that it was over the last 30 years moving forward. And so what you, what you, what you first want to do is, is you, want to, you want to understand the rationale behind the why, right? So, so something like 90% of your return in investing comes from which asset class you're in. And so it's a, it's looking backwards, you see that the U.S. economy over the last 30, 40 years was the, the best place to park your assets because not only did Americans park our assets here, but everybody around the world bought American assets. And so why? So let's, let's time travel back to 1980, right? You, it's 1980. The U.S. Treasury rate was about 10 to 20, 10 to 12 percent. And a lot of people, you want to think like a banker. Because interest rates are the smartest markets in the world, meaning the stock market can be irrational a lot in the in, for a long period of time because there's a lot of retail investors. But people who are buying bonds are sophisticated investors. So like, you know, uh, people who are lending countries money, basically it's more institutional money. And so the bond market is a great predictor of long-term growth, long-term inflation targets. And so when I say in 1980... The ten-year Treasury rate was twelve, ten to twelve percent. That's that's one input. And again, thinking like a banker, one input is okay. The economy is, the U.S. economy is projecting healthy growth, right? Ten, ten to twelve percent, assuming right the U.S. economy was a good risk, right? Because the second factor is what's the risk? Well, at that time, economy was a relatively good risk to everything else in the world because we were the reserve currency. We had the best rule of law. We had a strong military. Um, we had a relatively robust economy. Lots of things happening here. And anybody who wanted to buy energy in the world had to have U.S. dollars. And so 
So you, now you look at the context of the 10, 12 percent and you go, OK, it's a good risk and it's healthy growth. And so that's a that's a that's a positive sign for growth in the economy. So then you 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 fast forward over the next uh, uh, well, backtrack. So when you look at that, you say, OK, if I want to invest in the U.S. economy, I can I can own cash. Right. Lowest risk. And cash, those are those are days when you actually earn interest, putting your money in the bank account. You can you can buy the bonds at ten twelve percent, which is considered the you know ten year risk free rate. You can buy stocks. You can buy U.S. real estate. And so over the next twenty years, the U.S. stock market from nineteen eighty to two thousand earned about twelve percent right over that over that period of time. And some some finance nerds might, might be like, well, man, the bonds are paying ten twelve percent. The stock market earned ten percent. You know, in bonds are less risky. Why would you invest in stocks? Well, you got to remember, I'm giving you the ten-year rate. Right? If there were a twenty-year rate further out, it would it would have been projecting, you know, probably a a, a a higher rate. And I don't know, I don't know what the stock market earned in the period of time uh, from 1980 to 1990, right? Which would which would match up with the ten-year. But if I would if I would have backtracked the the time frame a year back, because the, the time where it ended was about the time when the dot-com crash ended. It kind of messed up the returns. But if I would have backed it up, it would have been better than bonds. So just forget that part. Just understand that the bond market told you that the U.S. economy was relatively healthy, so it was really good to buy U.S. assets over over that period of time. And so now, and, and so so thinking back then, if you're looking at it at the macro and you understand that, hey, thinking like a banker, the U.S. is a good credit risk, good place to park money. Um, sound economy, the, the 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 relatively lowest risk place you can put money, with a with a with a good return. Then you say, okay, yeah, that's when the S and P five hundred index investing worked because just ninety percent, most of your return comes from asset allocation. So just buy U.S. stocks, right? Versus because it's really hard to try and time when to be in and when to be out of time, which stocks are going to do the best, which U.S. major stocks are going to do the best over a period of time, right? Um, you can you can potentially earn a better return by by taking more risk. Meaning, small cap stocks tend to do better than large cap stocks, right? Or uh, newer you know newer company stocks tend to do better than older stocks. So you could have got an edge doing that, but those are different asset classes. But if you you know um, if you say like risk of like risk, and you try and select the better one of like risk, right? So for example, Pepsi versus Coke. In that example, that's 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 really tough to do, right? So, um, so that's that's why the index investing myth has gotten not myth, but the 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 you know the religion has gotten so big. People are like, oh, okay, looking backwards, I'm just gonna do that moving forward. Well, you have to always be assessing the situation like a banker. So let's look at today, right? Look at look at the situation today. So the ten year rate, as of when I checked an hour ago was about 1.37%, right? Bond market, again, is the wisest market out there. Let me explain what I mean by, by that. So wisdom of the crowd. So if there's a there's this experiment done in colleges, and, and the professor will have like these jelly beans in the front, and he'll ask everybody to guess how many jelly beans are, are, are in the jar. And almost nobody ever guesses the right amount. But collectively, when, he, when you average out everybody's guesses, it's, it's about right. Right. And so that's the wisdom of the crowd. And so the bond market, again, since there's basically all institutional investors, it's the best predictor of future long term uh, inflation and growth targets. So 10 year note, and it's, it's very accurate, 10 year rate, 
uh, 1.37%. So that says, hey, the market's foreseeing slow growth for the for the for, for the foreseeable future in the in in the U.S. Right? You know, and so then so then you say, okay, let me look at all the other factors of uh, of health, right? And so and it's all relative. Just like if if you're a banker, you're lending relative to your other alternatives. But a couple of different things have changed, right? So so the U.S. is still the best credit risk in the world relative to all the other major co- countries because, you know, their growth is um, relatively slower and they have political strife. But we're also in a period of time where our reserve status uh, for the future uh, is in question, right? You have China and Russia who are de-dollarizing, which means they're, they're, they're starting to do lots of more trade in uh, in other currencies, a lot of co- countries are no longer like uh, buying as many treasuries for their reserves. Um, as a matter of fact, well, you can just look it up. Look up who's the biggest buyer of uh, U.S. Treasury bonds now. And I don't believe, I, I think we're the biggest buyer of our Treasury bonds now. You look that up because I don't know for sure. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you Google that, that's that's going to be true. So we're losing our reserves. That is, you know, our military is now in question because of what happened in Afghanistan and that's not a political deal, but I'm just saying these are these are the market's assessments of what's going on. Again, see, the rates show that our economy is perceived to be uh, weaker uh, than normal. And so so then you say, okay, so, man, Philip, where do I invest? Because, like, everywhere else, I mean, China's an authoritarian uh, regime, and nobody's going to invest in that. Europe is worse off than us. Japan's worse off than us. So uh, I'm stuck in a world of low growth, which which means low returns. Well, you have to learn how to bifurcate the market, look at different economies, right? And so we tend to think of economies in terms of geolocation, which was the way of the past. Now, if you look at economies in the digital age, right, then you see a different picture because if you look at the growth of the internet economy or digital economy, it's been growing at something like 15% a year for the last two decades, right? The digital economy, things that we're buying online, right? So think of that like a country, right? If a country was growing at 15% a year, on average, you'd be like, I want to park assets there. And then you look back over the last 20 years, who are the rich people? It's people who own Facebook stock, Amazon stock, Tesla stock, Square stock, right? So then you begin to say, interesting, right? Now you look at the crypto market over the last decade, and that's growing like north of 150% a year, that market. So that's a, that's another uh, entire other economy, right? And then you dig a little bit deeper and you say, okay, so these are growing economies. Uh, and, and I'm going to stick with crypto for a moment because I'll come back to the tech stocks, but just stick with crypto for a moment. There's lending markets that are naturally being developed in the crypto market. So, for example, I own Bitcoin. I, you know, I'm, I'm saying, you know, hey, Bitcoin's growing at, you know, north of 150% a year for the last two decades. That's a that's a good return, right? You know, I'm I'm happy with that. Uh, somebody says, hey, I want to borrow, I want to borrow some of your Bitcoin, Philip, and I'm like, my precious, right? You got to pay me to risk my precious, right? Because um, they're not going to pay me something that's they're not going to pay me. Uh, they're not going to pay me an interest rate for something that's worthless. They're going to pay me some, for something that people want, right? And so you look at the crypto lending rates for lending Bitcoin out for just a year. And that is something like 8 to 10% a year that you can get that you can uh, get paid interest on for lending out your Bitcoin over a year and, or stable coins, which is a whole conversation. Uh, and so and so you go so you go, "Well, man, in the in the fiat world or the, you know, 
government money world, you know, short-term rates, one-year rates are like pretty basically zero because there's plenty of money, you know, there's plenty of money there and growth is relatively uh, slow. There's not, not much you can do. But then you say in the Bitcoin world or crypto world, you're getting 8 to 10% interest. Interesting, right? Because that's just, that's just interest for, for borrowing the money. So that gives you a little bit of uh, of insight, and if you know, if if you talk to anybody who's been in crypto, Bitcoin is the reserve asset of the crypto space. So think of what the U.S. dollar was for the world, you know, for the world economy over the last forty years. Bitcoin is the global reserve asset for the crypto space, uh, growing at north of one hundred fifty percent a year. And so, so now you when you when you frame it that way, you begin to think, all right, I have different options for investing in this new world. I want to. I want to look at the two different economies that are actually growing at a good level relative to everything else. So the digital economy growing at 15% a year, the crypto economy growing at 150% a year, even the, again, Bitcoin, the reserve asset is growing at a aggressive rate, 150% a year uh, plus. So, so, so you got options. You say, I can just buy Bitcoin, <laughs> not be fancy, buy Bitcoin, make lots of money, but you want to diversify, right? So you also may say, I'm, you know, instead of buying S and P 500 index fund with all my money, I'm going to buy Amazon, Facebook, Google, Tesla, Square, the companies that are growing their cash flows at north of, you know, 20% a year, better than the average digital economy growth, right? Which, which you have Arc, you know, Arc ETF is the ETF that I like. I own right there, ARKW, ARKK, which just invests in those companies for you, uh, so you don't have to own all the individual stocks. And so they, they've created the quote-unquote active S&P 500 index fund for the digital economy, uh, and, 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 and the corresponding returns have been great over time. You can buy stable coins or Bitcoin and, and lend it out, you know, make some money. Stable coins are like digital dollars, right? They don't go up like Bitcoin or down like Bitcoin, but you can be a stable coin and still lend out at 8-10% at today's rates uh, for a year. That's an option because there's so little little money in, in the digital economy, right? The economy's growing aggressively. It it needs more dollars to grow, so you get paid by being there. Just like if you were early lending in America when they had less money, less banks, you got paid a lot of money just for lending money, you know, in the early days. Finance 101, y'all. You can buy raw materials for the new digital age. So this is when you heard me talk about lithium, uranium, you know, we're going, uh, you know, lithium is powers the batteries that powers our iPhones, these digital, you know, Tesla's digital cars, uranium, you know, that's what powers nuclear plants, the cleanest, most abundant energy, not, not most abundant, but when you combine clean, abundant uh, cost, nuclears uh, is that. And so the, the, another thing we're in the digital world, we're moving towards cleaner, uh, cleaner energy solutions. And you can also buy the new quote unquote banks of the new crypto economy. So that is the crypto miners and exchanges, right? Because again, in early America, you made lots of money owning bank shares because they financed the new economy. These companies are financing, quote unquote, right, the new economy. So it goes back to what I was saying. It's when you're looking at this, you're not trying to select, right, Coinbase, you know, versus Kraken, you know, which, which are two crypto companies. You're just, there's ETFs you can buy where you just buy a basket of crypto miners and, 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 and exchanges, right? Which is which is what I do, right? You can buy the ARK ETF, which, which owns a basket of the internet companies growing at a faster rate than the internet ado- internet economy is growing, right? You, I'm not trying to pick out which 
uranium mining company is going to be the best one. I just buy a basket of them, right? And so I'm replicating what people have done over the last 30, 40 years with the S&P 500. Uh, I'm just doing it in economies that are growing at a more competitive rate. So it's asset allocation, but the asset allocation, assuming my assumptions are correct, will build more wealth than buying the S&P 500, which is the best stock market you can buy in the government money world, because uh, but but everything's slow because we have so much global debt, right? And this and, and and all these economies are set to grow, or scheduled to grow very very slowly. So this is this is the difference. This is the nuance. This is you know. So when you say index investing, right? Yeah, you can still use low cost index funds and ETFs because it makes sense from a cost standpoint. But don't just blindly think buying the S and P five hundred over the next 20, 30 years is going to work like it did over the last thirty years because this. The, the the details, the data, the situation is different. So I hope this helps somebody. I hope I broke it down in a way where it makes complete sense. If I didn't, shoot me an email. Hit me up on Twitter, ask underscore Philip. Uh, until next week, I'll enjoy your day. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.